Who the bloody hell's that? Morning, Ange. Oh, Anthony. How are we? I'm really well. How are you? <laughs> Come on in. I will do. Thank you. Did that sound staged? Just a little. No, it's fine. fine. Yeah. I'm going to embrace the whole lounge pant thing next time. I'm going to put my University of New Hampshire lounge pants on. You should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Um, well, hello, this is, um, we're on episode two of the podcast. They've probably used Oddcast, haven't they? Oddcast, oh yeah, yeah. We were, just talking about, we were just talking about names before we started. Um, Don, and- Doncast. <laughs> Don, hey, Doncast. Doncast might work actually. Don't don't let that one go. Um, you're gonna yeah, chorus support in South Wales for that one. Used as well. uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, we'll, we'll 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 reset. Hello, welcome to episode two of the podcast. Or Godcast. Or go- Ooh, uh, m- m- might seem a bit. Yeah, yeah. Rock Godcast. Rock. Yeah, Rock I, I, I don't think that's getting any less self obsessed. No, it isn't, no, no. no. I'll try again. Hello. I didn't mean it. Welcome to episode two of the podcast. Self-effacing my managed to do programs Uh, here. Yeah, yeah. And we're we're back in we're back in H's kitchen. Um and uh, everything as it is. The world is still spinning. The dog's Um, still under the sofa. This dog's still under the sofa, though obviously greeted me uh, as normal and then been warned off by the purple hue. Uh the purple aura. Could you call the podcast purple aura? Purple, purple aura might work. Anyway, we digress. We digress. Um, so today we're going to talk a little aura bit with the purple aura. Uh, sorry, carry on. We 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 are going to talk a little bit about. Uh, we got into a conversation when we were recording the last podcast. We got into a little bit of conversation about um, Steve's musical tastes before or as he was growing up. Um, because I'd assumed, having seen bits of the European stuff and and the and the things that 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 you know Steve had been doing before, he came to my notice um, in Marillion that it was a kind of a early eighties pop, kind of slightly indie pop, kind of punky kind of background, and I kind of expected that's where your musical inferences to have come from. But we got talking, and 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 you kind of it got us onto the path of your prog background which i didn't know anything about so uh so 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 talk about h the prog in his early years well i I discovered progressive rock music when i was about 17 um i went to a party and somebody was playing a lot of stuff i'd never heard they were playing the yes album um which blew my mind and still does to be honest uh I mean, a lot of that early yes stuff is worth another listen because it, it's astounding. Um, and then somehow, I mean, on that on that same night, I, I heard Led Zeppelin for the first time. Um, and I kind of never really got fully engaged in Led Zeppelin. Uh, although I could... I could see that there was a lot about about them that was really interesting, particularly like John John Bonham's drumming. Um, and then shortly around that, after that, or around that same time, I, I discovered Genesis. Um, and then I saw Focus on the telly on the old grey whistle test, and I thought they were amazing. So 
I went to see Yes on the Fragile Tour, on the Close to the Edge Tour a couple of times, Manchester, um, Sheffield. So, um, saw them on the Relayer Tour a couple of times at least after um, Rick Wakeman had left and um, Patrick Moraz had joined them. And Genesis, I saw on just about every tour from the word go. I saw them um, on the um, Nursery Crime Tour, the Foxtrot Tour a couple of times, saw them at Reading Festival on that Foxtrot Tour, saw them tour twice, at least on the Selling England by the Pound Tour. Peter Gabriel came on with a stocking over his head, sang the Battle of Epping Forest. Um and the lamb lies down on Broadway. I, I saw that live a couple of times, and the boys in Marillion are actually quite jealous of a you know because they've. <laughs> I've seen much more of all that than they have. So you, You've um, outprogged the rest no, of the band. Totally outprogged them. Right. And uh, I went and saw Focus quite a few times back in the day as well. So, so it was terrific to do a gig with Focus uh, last last year. You know. And I, I, I actually um, have Tice Van Leer with his with his arm around me. You know, with some, some they're beautiful moments. Those when they happen because they take you right back to when you were a kid and you know down out there in the auditorium watching these people. Um, so yeah, lovely to meet to to meet these guys when you meet them. Um, so I was right into all of that prog at the time. Yes, Genesis particularly. Um, and to a lesser extent, Focus and, you know, I guess Supertramp were prog, weren't they, when yeah. they when they, when yeah. they arrived? Um, I never saw them, never saw them live. But I had, you know, I had all the records. Even in the quietest moments, that's very prog, that yeah. album. That's, that's the unpoppy one. Um, who else was I listening to back then? I kind of went through that then and and discovered Joni Mitchell. Um, and then then the eighties happened. And I started listening to um, Prefab Sprout, uh, who I absolutely loved. The Blue Nile, who were my favourite band, might still be my favourite band. Um. I went to the Blue Nile in in London when when they when they eventually first toured. I think they'd done two albums, two albums before they even toured, and they did a gig in London at the um, not the Lyceum, the other one. I get them mixed up, the one in Tottenham Court Road. Anyway, went went to that theatre, and it was like the Who's Who of rock and roll in there. You know, Peter Gabriel was on the front row, sitting next to Chrissy Hind, who was sitting next to Annie Lennox. Um, to see this band that nobody much had heard of, right. but they were a musicians' band, yeah, you yeah. know. If you, they were yeah. musos, musos, and Europeans used to used to play the Blue Nile all the time when we were touring. Later on, um, so to a lesser extent, I was listening to you know that first U two album, Boy. I really loved um, the Joshua Tree, and I really, really loved Actung Baby. I thought that was fantastic. That's a superb album. 
Yeah, well, really, they really lost grand. a lot of fans with that album, yeah, you know, because yeah. they, they, they were really tearing down what they represented with that album, and I admired them for it. Uh, some of the textures on there, sonically, it's beautiful. Mm. Really, really good. Yeah, it's a great, it's a daring record. Yeah. It's a really daring record from a band that, that, you know, had everything to gain by keeping the same sound that they'd always had. They, they, were, they, they were really going for it, and I admired them for that. Well, yeah, I think you saw the with you too. I think you saw the, you saw how the sound worked its way up to become the Joshua Tree. You kind of you, there was there was bits in the previous albums, and you you understood where where Joshua Tree came from. And then Acton Baby's like, I haven't got a clue. I haven't got a clue where that came from. Mm. Um, that, that was like trying to smash, smash their own. I remember when they released that single, the, the first single. They only released for two weeks, didn't they? And it guaranteed that it went straight to number one because they put it out effectively on a limited release. Oh, they were always very, very, very. Um clever you know with the with the way they approached business they were really really ruthless yeah. as well according to dave megan because megan had worked with you two he, he recorded rattle and hum and he mixed the joshua he didn't mix it but he engineered the joshua right. tree so he was actually on that album yeah. recorded a lot of it so he he got to know them very well and he said they were very very analytical and ruthless yeah. in business you know but the way they actually a lot of their decisions weren't weren't just artistic. They were, you know, some business decisions. Yeah, yeah. slight edge of cynicism to it. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, but he said he said the edge was a geek. He said said the edge was never happier than when he was sat cross legged with a soldering iron and a load of gear in gear, bits. just making something happen. Yeah, which you wouldn't think it's unusual for guitarists that. So that. To, to talk, listen to you talk through that. Then there's this this whole proggy thing, you know, in, in the that then morphs a little bit into more of a in, in more of a, a, a pop thing. But then I guess not in pop in the sense we think about it. The 80s was a different kind of pop. It was much more adventurous and more more avant garde and, and, and what have you. There was a lot of interesting things going on. So how do you get the reputation of being the poppy one in Marillion then? Well, I don't know. Probably because I I arrived in the band with. I mean, to be honest, I arrived in the band with Easter, yeah. which ain't exactly a pop mega hit, yeah. is it? It's it's more of a folk song, really. Um, and and Holloway Girl, um, and and then on the second album, No One Can, of course, which is probably, you know, the 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 sort of as near as Marillion have ever come to a a pop ballad. Pop, yeah, not that it did as any good. No. Um, but even that was was born out of some chords that that, that Mark Kelly had jammed in the studio. I, I, I think I'd I arrived I arrived at Marillion having just come out of the How We Live experience, where I'd been signed to CBS Records under a lot of under a lot of pressure yeah. to write pop, pop tunes. tunes. And they did used to lean on you, you know. But as far as they were concerned, it was all a waste of time if it didn't have three hit singles on it. Um, I remember Muff Winwood saying that to me, you know, if it hasn't got three hit singles on it, we won't even bother recording it. No. You know, that's how they viewed albums. Yeah. Um, Which explains a lot of albums through the 80s, I guess, because, I mean, a lot of albums through the 80s, well, take Joshua Chi, three hit singles on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Different label, but uh, Paul Young, you know, Terence yeah. Trent Derby. Yeah. They, they, they were the 
they were the people that Duran Duran three hit singles on most albums. That we were they're the people we were kind of in direct competition with when we was with CBS and we um, you know we, we had a, we, on the album we had all the time in the world and we had dry land and um, maybe we didn't have the third one working girl um, but none of it really happened or got away or got airplay anyway so that was the end of it. Yeah. Um, but I but I came out of that experience, and you know, into Marillion, which was a, a, a weird a weird journey, you yeah. know. From so I guess I, I I was in that mindset of they used to as they always have done as we always have done were written by jamming, yeah. But as soon as they had something interesting going on in the jams, I'd be going, hang on, hang on, hang on. I've got a middle eight for that. We could do this, we could do this, we could go there. This could be the chorus. Let's do this. Straight in a verse two, no messing about. And they were looking at me, oh, it's far too soon. <laughs> He's writing a song. He's right. He has to be stopped. <laughs> and in the end, on the holidays and evening sessions, they actually sent me home. Right. They, you know, they made me go away for a few weeks because I was I, I was trying to write songs all the time. It was messing with their mojo. Did you not produce your lifetime prog fan little badge? To, <laughs> did, it, did it not sit? Was it like a get out of jail free card? I saw Genesis on the first tour, therefore I am staying. Well, I think the rebel in me was, you know, was was probably saying, "Oh, prog's a load of our rubbish." Right. You know, uh, uh, that, that I imagine that went down well. That, well, they're not as in they're not as entrenched in the prog thing as you'd imagine, to be honest. I mean, it's not like they all sit around at night cross-legged listening to early Genesis. They don't, you know. I mean, they listen to all sorts of stuff. Ian listens to magma things yeah. that you can't even listen to. <laughs> um, <laughs> Mark's been known to snuggle up with a bit of Rufus Wayne, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. and and uh, we all? I don't know yeah. what. I don't know what Rothers listens to. He, I mean, these days he he bangs on about um, what's that Icelandic band called Sigaross. He quite he likes them a lot. So you know, it's not like we all sit around listening to old prog all the time. Um, there isn't that. There isn't that self consciousness in the band that slowly went away. That it was there during holidays in Eden, and I think that's why they sent me home. I think they were worried. That I was, you know, I was gonna, I was trying to turn the band into something that they weren't comfortable with, um, you know. And then, then we made Brave, and we, I think, when we made Brave, we everybody realised we'd, we'd, we'd sort of intermeshed yeah. at that point and found some common ground. Um, although that's easier to say looking back than 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 it might have felt at the time. I remember the whole time we were making Brave, sitting in the studio with Dave Megan, thinking, well, this is sort of like quadrophenia. Yeah. This isn't like Prague. No. This isn't... This is another thing, no. you know, and I, 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 I don't know if anybody's going to like this. I, I was thinking that the whole time. I think... I, I, I don't know if anyone's... You know, if any of the diehard fans are going to get this album at no. all. And I think a lot of them didn't. No. I think we hemorrhaged fans when we released Brave. I can see that. And now, and now, the general word on the accepted wisdom is that that was the best. You know, that was the amazing work of art, and yeah. 
they you know they all look back on it fondly as being yeah. one of the band's finest moments. And you, you weren't saying that yeah. at the time. <laughs> the time. <laughs> well, I I never I never thought it was prog. I never you know I'm I don't have a prog background. I mean, and when people talk about Marillion as prog, it it it, it jars with me because that that's not. That's not what I listened to, so I didn't arrive at it as a as, as a kind of a, having gone through all these influences and arrive at your door. That that you know you talk about Genesis and yes and all those kind of things that didn't happen to me. I started with I started with pop in the eighties. That's what I came through, and then I arrived at Marillion and it chimed. But it doesn't sit, you know. If 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 it was possible for a group of CDs to sit on my shelf somehow out of kilter with everything else, then you would say Marillion does. But actually. Um, but actually, it doesn't because I I don't hear it as as prog. So to me, brave was never prog. No, and even this word prog is, is so weird. I mean, do yes sound anything like Genesis, and do they sound like anybody anything like Focus or Jethro Tull? All these bands were sort of lumped into this umbrella term that, at the time just simply meant progressive music, yeah. an attempt to break out of everything that had gone before. That's yeah. what progressive meant at the time. And then it sort of fossilised, you know, 20 years later into a sort of derogatory term for a certain kind of music in yeah. the 70s that wasn't pop. Yeah. You know, and so the word prog became like something you'd wipe off your shoe. Yeah rather than just progressive music, you know, music that's trying to do something that no one's ever done because when it's 20 years old, it, you know, you can't look at it through that no, prism. No. It becomes something that everybody has done instead of something that nobody's done. Um, and that's true of a lot of genres. Uh, I mean, the, the band that started me off being a musician was, was Deep Purple. And yeah. I went to Sheffield City Hall and saw Deep Purple playing Machine Head. And you can argue that Deep Purple invented heavy rock. But they're not a heavy rock band because it didn't exist. If you invent it, you can't be that thing. No, you can't. That's not what you're listening to. You're You're listening... listening. They were listening to other stuff. And then they'd created this thing that didn't exist, which is what made it amazing. And I sat there transfixed. Because I'd never heard a Hammond organ sound like John Lord's Hammond organ. And I'd never heard an electric guitar sound like Richie Blackmore's guitar. And I'd never heard anybody sing like Ian Gillan. So I just sat there thinking, this is mad. This is like nothing I've ever heard. It's amazing. Yeah. And the energy of it. And it, wow, this is what I should be doing. And I had the kind of, nothing is better than this. Yeah. So if I dedicate my life to anything else, I'm an idiot. Yeah. This is it. Yeah. This is what, you know, so, so that was my boom road to Damascus moment. Um, and I came out of that gig determined to be then a musician and not an electrical engineer. Um, and that was, that, that was what changed it. But, but everybody listens to Deep Purple now and goes, oh, that's that heavy metal band, that's yeah, that yeah. heavy rock band. But they invented it. Well, they went, you know. So they go, oh, I don't like every rock. It's all derivative. It's like that. No, but they they invented it. <laughs> it's yeah. It's that weird thing that you go back to the beginning and listen to it and compare it to the things that came afterwards that couldn't have come afterwards without that band in the first place. Yeah, you know, and, on and Deep often, Purple, they sound like so and so. Well, I got a minute. A lot of things that come afterwards aren't as good. No, 
and give it a bad reputation. Uh, yeah, yeah, give the original. Yeah, kind of is what happened with Prague. There was a yeah. lot of very third rate or tenth rate prog bands who kind of missed the point yeah. of what those of what Genesis and Yes and Focus were were doing. That they, they, they just passed them by. And they thought that if they bought themselves a Rick and Backer bass and play and played in nine eight, they were they, they could call themselves a prog band, yeah, and have a cape. And in and in doing so, trash the reputation of of some very very fine music, and yeah. you know, and well, genius. Yeah. So no, I was right there, but then I, I just kind of went past Frog. By the time I was nineteen, started listening to other stuff. And then the eighties happened, and I was listening to The Police and U Two mm. and Simple Minds and Prefab Sprout. And I was still going back and listening to Joni, and I would still throw the Yes album on every now and again. But I'd be just as happy to. I've said this before. I'd be just as happy to listen to Yours Is No Disgrace, take it off, and put London Calling. Yeah, yeah. For yeah. me, there wasn't that much difference. No. There was just two great bands yeah. doing something really raw and honest. Yeah, you know, and and kind of create inventing something as they went. So I, I, I don't see why you've got to call one thing one thing, and then call. I mean, calling the what would you call the Clash, a punk rock band? They'd punch you. You know, and I'd punch you yeah. if you come to Clash of Punk Rock Band. It's so disrespectful. There's so much more than that. You know, they're more like a. I mean, they're, all their influences were Jamaican. Yeah, yeah. Really? For a bunch of white boys. It was sort of like London, Jamaican. Yeah. Well, it's funny what you were talking music. because I was thinking that. I was thinking back to the fact that I was, I've always been a big Taste for Face fan, and yet there's lots on there that you could call in that sense progressive. Yeah, There's I think Roland real... was very influenced by 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 a lot of you know by bands that were thinking outside yeah. the box and arranging songs more in a more if you forgive the term you know from, from like arranging a symphony yeah. more than arranging a, a three minute pop song. But Roland managed to be able to do those two things two at, at the once. same time. Yeah, which is that's the thing, isn't it? Incredible talent. You know, uh, but no, some of that, some of that, and I've listened to uh, some of it recently, and was just knocked out by, by the the imagination and the and and the limitlessness to what he thought he could, and mm. that band thought they could achieve. Yeah, uh, Sonus Seeds of Love's just fantastic. Oh, incredible! In you know, songs on the big chair and all of that. Oh yeah, all the way back. Actually, it's absolutely superb stuff. Really well, Manny Elias from Tears for Fears played drums with How We Live. You know what? We toured with Manny drumming. Um, and I, you know, I met Roland back then when they were working on sowing the seeds of love. Had an Indian, had an Indian with Roland. An Indian with Roland. That's is that a good enough name for the podcast? I'm not convinced that's <laughs> going to work either, is it? I'm still on Purple Aura. I haven't got past that yet. <laughs> I think it's going to be the, it's got to Dora the Explorer with the Purple Aura. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's maybe a, ta- a, a tad too far. Should we? <laughs> should we? Should we do our normal thing? Should we grab a brew and come back and have a bit of the diary? Yeah, yeah. By all means, let's do that. I think we should grab more than a brew. I think we should. I think the sun's below the yard arm, personally. <laughs> Oh, 
Oh, right, so we're back. Uh, we were going to stop for a brew, but we had some, we, we've gone for a beer instead. So uh, so the, the sound of clink is is is, is Beck's beer, uh, which is always a always a start. Um, and uh, we're going to do a bit more diary, aren't we? From, from where we from where we left off in the last episode, I believe. We yes. Were, were we in Iceland? We were in Iceland. Yeah, right. I'd, I'd been to a fancy dress party. That's right. I bought Björk a drink. Yeah. And uh, I'd fallen out of there at half past five. Why, by the way, just I meant I meant to ask you while we were doing the last one. Why, why were you there on your own? The band didn't feature in the, in that bit of the video, or did, did in fact didn't feature in that video at all? They were trying to keep the costs down. To be right, honest, okay. the, the band are in it, but we uh, we went up to uh, Malham Malham Limestone Pavement. Right, your neck, your neck of the yeah, woods, Malham, isn't it? Malham it's, Cove, Malham Tarn, yeah, and yeah, all of that. It's, it's, well, it's my wife's from Skipton, so it's up that neck of the woods, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah. we we filmed. There's a joke in our house because every time she says that, I say, "Oh, there's a tarn there," because I learned it in geography. <laughs> well, we 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 filmed uh, all the band stuff up there, and then in because because it's a similar kind of landscape, right? With it being a strange yeah. limestone, otherworldly sort of landscape, and so then we cut up. it in. They cut it into that because they couldn't afford to put everybody on the plane to Reykjavik. Right. It was so expensive. Right, so you just got to go. So and, I got to and go. And they went to Yorkshire. And, and they didn't. Yeah, I got right, to okay. stand in front of okay. And that's there, no yeah. lasting scars for that then. That's the, all been fine ever since. gazers and the glaciers. No, they've never mentioned it much. Right, right okay. Right, they don't, okay. you know, they don't refer to it when taking the piss or anything. So just, I, just I think they're all right. Just for those of you, before we start, just for those of you who've listened to the other episodes so far, um, the, the dog... Is currently round my legs, um, avoiding uh, avoiding master <laughs> like the plague, who is resplendent in purple. Um, so, uh, for those of you who listened so far, then this is this is becoming a thing. Uh, animals and small children. Yes, the, the throbbing aura. Anyway, anyway, over to you in the diary. Saturday, the seventeenth of August. Vatna Jokul Glacier, Reykjavik, and home in that order. Up at eight o'clock. Feeling well tricky after two hours sleep. Thermal underwear on, along with extra shirts, big black coat and borrowed padded Rukunor jacket. The helicopter had been modified for filming, i.e. one side had been removed. I discovered that no matter how theoretically cold an open-air helicopter ride above Iceland might seem, the reality underneath umpteen layers of intimate clothing was colder. It must have been worse for the cameraman who was holding the freezing metal of the camera with ungloved hands as we rushed through the high-altitude air. Rather him than me. We kept landing at predetermined beauty spots where I was dropped off and told to stand precariously close to torrents of rushing water above sheer drops, which all looks great on film and was actually fun to do, not to mention a welcome relief from the journey between locations in the flying freezer. The helicopter pilot seemed fearless. At one point, I watched as the thing flew below me and towards me between two rock faces of a river valley, while I stood trying to look nonchalant, balanced on a wet rock on yet another precipice. After that particular shot, they landed and Howard climbed down. If that shot don't make you feel important, I don't know what will, he declared in his broad West Yorkshire accent. The big one was actually yet to come. Towards the end of the morning, I was dropped onto a glacier on top of a mountain. As far as I know, no one had ever been there. You can only be here if you're dropped from the sky. The helicopter pilot slowly throttled back as we landed, waiting to feel if the ice was solid enough beneath us to take our weight. 
As I climbed down onto the helicopter skids and extended a careful toe onto the ice surface, the Icelandic pilot broke a rueful grin and said, Nice knowing you. The chopper took off and disappeared into the distance. I heard the engine noise die away to silence and I was suddenly alone, absolutely alone and irretrievably isolated from the world. Quite a feeling. Neil Armstrong, without Aldrin. By a strange twist of fate, I was to meet Neil Armstrong nine years after writing this and he bought me lunch. After a few nervous, uncertain steps, my confidence on the ice surface increased. I got the hang of walking and tried running, sunglasses on and coat billowing like a black flag. When the helicopter returned after five long minutes, I was fairly adjusted to the conditions. They filled me walking around from above, and as I was investigating the sound of running water far below me at the edge of a crevasse, Howard decided we'd pushed our luck far enough, and I was somewhat demonstratively beckoned back into the helicopter. We flew back across Iceland to the airport, where I was already late for the flight back to England. As we approached Reykjavik Airport, I noticed we were on a collision course with an incoming passenger jet. Our pilot had been given clearance by air traffic control to cross above the runway, so I waited until the last minute before tapping him on the shoulder to point out the plane coming towards us. He took evasive action, banking hard to the left to get out of the way. I assumed he'd seen it, but evidently not. Well, it would have been a glamorous rock and roll way to go. I thanked everyone and told Howard I'd see him back at the edit in London. I practically ran from the helicopter to board the plane to Heathrow, stopping only to check in my suitcase. And when I sat down in my seat, I began to boil. I'd come straight from the top of a mountain glacier and was still wearing thermal underwear and several layers of shirts and pullovers. I made my way to the toilet and in the limited space of the plane loo, I struggled out of my clothes and underwear, then redressed normally emerging from the toilet again, carrying an impressive pile of clothes up the centre aisle past the other passengers. Finally arrived at Heathrow in the evening to discover that no one had thought to arrange a car to take me home, and this being Saturday, I couldn't ring the management or the film company. Great. You can't get black cabs to take you to Windsor from Heathrow. They all want to go to London, and there are no trains or buses. I still don't know how I got home. Sunday, 18th of August. Home, Wales and home. The car was late, but I wanted it later, still recovering from Dora's do and the glaciers. Driven to Merthyr Tidfil in a nice new Range Rover, not as comfortable as you might think, with Ian and Jack to mime on the Radio 1 Roadshow. Surprised by the number of people there. Must be bugger all to do in Merthyr Tidfil. Seemed to go okay. Met Mike Reed, Radio 1 DJ, for the first time. He seemed a bit distracted. Also, Timmy Mallet's wife, who seemed very nice. Insisted on lying down to sign autographs. Mike Reed invited us for drinks later. We didn't go, ever the ambitious pros. Ha ha. Back home by 8 o'clock, straight to bed, glacially exhausted. Next day, <laughs> Monday the 19th of August. Home, London. Met Paddy Spinks from Hit and Run US Management in the pub. To look at, he's a perfect cross between Peter Gabriel and my dear departed chum Des O'Connor. 
school friend, guitar player and co-writer in my first band, Harlow, now sadly lost to this world by leukaemia. Two good men. Maybe it's a good omen. Walked down the street, chatting to a chap who looked about my age. He had a faint Scouse accent. I thought I'd met him before and was trying to work out why he seemed so familiar. Didn't even twig when John Crawley from Charisma Music Publishing introduced us. Steve, this is Julian. Julian, Steve. Got to the pub and ordered a beer. Julian ordered a Guinness. And as he did so, my brain underwent a small explosion as I realised he was Julian Lennon. Holy shit. He's eerily like John. Different body, same spirit. Albeit slightly softer. Me. I didn't recognise you. Julian. Good. Beyond that, we didn't have much chance to talk. He seemed like a very nice chap, down to earth, almost unfeasibly so. I was surprised at how old he looked, considering he was the son of my all-time hero. Funny how when someone dies, they remain the same age forever, so it comes as a shock to see their children older than them. Gave my favourite clothes to Sally Higgins, coincidentally Liverpudlian a seamstress and friend of our tour manager, Paul Lewis, who took them to Liverpool to make copies for touring. Picked Diz and Fifi up from King's Cross, back from Doncaster. Took ages to get home after a lorry had overturned at the Egham turn-off of M25. There's been a coup in the Soviet Union. Mikhail Gorbachev is detained in the Ukraine and Boris Yeltsin has barricaded himself in the Parliament building, Moscow. That's handy then. 20th of August. Popped out for an hour at one o'clock to edit Dryland down at Abbey Road with Steve Rosary. Got finished by about 3.30, but got nobbled for approving artwork at EMI. Wrong photographs, etc. Didn't get home till half seven. Fed up. This should have been my day off. Wednesday, 21st of August. Home, Poland. Spent most of the day travelling to Gdansk for the Sopot Festival, which we were to play tomorrow. Hugh and Cry and Deacon Blue were also on the plane from Heathrow. My suitcase fell open as I claimed it from the carousel in Warsaw. Underwear everywhere. No one had actually booked the connecting flight from Warsaw to Gdansk, so we had to wait from 3 o'clock till 7.30 at a fairly dead offshoot of Warsaw Airport. Fortunately, we managed to find a bar, and it was during this wait that we heard that the Russian coup had collapsed and that Gorbachev was alive and returning to Moscow. Finally got to the Marina Hotel at 10pm and had dinner. Stroganoff. Surprisingly good. Had a few beers in the strange nightclub in the hotel, a bit like a school disco, and went to bed. Slept well under an odd-shaped Polish duvet in a room with an orange telephone. I repeatedly tried and failed to call England on it. Bollocks. P.S. Poland is a very big surprise. Very open and green. Gdansk has more in common with Torquay than Clydeside. The women don't look like blokes in dresses, as the news footage would have us believe. They are, on the whole, very beautiful, as is the surrounding countryside. You begin to wonder if there's been an agenda all these years to portray the Eastern Bloc as worse than it really is. I thought the Beeb was above that sort of thing. How naive of me. Thursday, 22nd of August, Gdansk. Rose around 10 and went for a walk along the beach. It was a sunny day and the beach was crowded with locals in swimwear, sunbathing. 
Apparently you shouldn't swim in the Baltic just here, if at all, as it's extremely polluted and, rumour has it, quite radioactive. But many were bathing, especially children. I collected small cockle shells for Fifi. Maybe I should boil them before I let her anywhere near them. She'll be delighted if they glow in the dark. Returned to the hotel for a press conference at 11am, only to be told not to bother, but to return at 1am for the cocktail party. Attended the cocktail party, but didn't drink as I wanted to remain lucid for the show. I'm singing live to the Eastern Bloc in Japan. Best not fuck up. The rehearsal in the afternoon was a nightmare. No one checked the tapes and there's no fades on them. Oh well, at least it'll sound real. Bumped into How We Live drummer and old pal Aaron Amun back at the hotel. He's drumming for Alison Moyet. Lost my rag with an interviewer and went for another walk by the sea. Set off for the show at eight, nervous wreck. To make matters worse, everyone's singing live and we're on after Hue and Cry and before Alison Moyet. I'm singing live to Poland in between two of the best singers in the UK. No pressure. It actually went very well after last minute finger tying. Saw the show later at the hotel and everyone agreed it was good, including Alison M. Blesser. Even got a pat on the back from aforementioned Hue and Criers. Praise indeed. Chatted to Alison later whilst terribly slushed. She took it rather well. It's interesting you finished the diary entry with that particular that particular story because Alison Moyer was always as I grew up through the eighties, she was always one of the people I thought was had godlike stature. I mean, I just thought she had an amazing voice. I mean, how, how is she? What is she? Is she, is she a nice person? Is she the... she's very nice, and, and I think the first time I met her was at that carousel when my suitcase exploded and my underwear was everywhere. <laughs> So that was quite embarrassing. I was picking my wife front off off the carousel, saying, "Oh, hello, I'm pleased to meet." She's very nice. Yeah. She's very nice, and and after you know, as I say, I, I was singing live in between. I can't remember the guy's name from You and Cry, but he's a great singer. Um, and I, he was on before before us, and Alison was on after us. And when I when I got off stage, um, they were all in the bar. And uh, she was very, very sweet. She said some nice things about my singing, and it was amazing to hear that from her because such a great, yeah. oh, such amazing. a great singer. Some of those tunes, I mean, say all cried out, you know, Love Resurrection. I mean, incredible vocals. Incredible yeah, vocals. yeah. But she's very, very, very lovely. Very modest. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's nice. Nice to find that out when somebody you like is a nice person. Um, we're about there for episode two. Um, uh, as as always, if you've if you've enjoyed. The episode. If you're enjoying the show, please tell people about it. Please share it with people. Yes, do. Uh, we would we, like as many people as possible to you know to listen. Please rate it and like it. Uh, and as always, uh, get in touch. Uh, get in touch with the show. We've, uh, we've, we've there's, there's there's links out there as to how you can how you can get in touch. Uh, so please fire off any questions or any comments. We'd love to hear from them. And we'll start you know responding to some of those as as, as the shows progress. Um, in in the meantime, take care and uh, and we'll we'll. I guess we'll see you again soon. We're going to do this again soon, aren't we? Yes, for yeah, sure. We, yeah, there we are. We do, we're doing sure. it again I've got nothing soon. but time. I'm uh, self-isolating. You see, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're still in that phase. We're still in that phase. <laughs> you might have to do it through the window. Right, I'll, I'll ring you or something. We'll find a way of making it work. We'll find a way. Anyway, anyway, everybody take care and we'll speak to you all soon.
Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production.